Mac Johnson yes. is Professor Emeritus of Art History at the University of Toronto, specializing in 18th century French art, has worked with Canadian and other museums, and after retirement, gifted the major part of his collection of prints and books to Carleton University. The rest are on deposit there. They go from the 16th century to the early 20th century. It concerns life mentalities, culture, as revealed in print, whether it is the printed book or prints, per se. Welcome to the bibliophile. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to assume the role of a 27-year-old accountant Okay. who has an interest in prints and books and doesn't have a huge budget but is fascinated by the field, doesn't know a heck of a lot about it, wants to get a good start, or what should he be looking for? Well, if it's a print, it is, or used to be, at least for my period, the working of linear or tonal shapes on a copper plate, which meant that these, unlike drawings or paintings, could be exactly reproduced and disseminated in large numbers therefore with cultural resonance and interest in reflecting their period. Prints are opportunistic. The king is getting married, the queen has died, the heir to the throne has just been born, or now there's an heir and a spare, the war has just been declared, or there is now a peace, or uh, have you seen such and such at the given theater or opera or dance or something rather? In other words, there's a potential audience someplace for what is going on that you can put into visual terms and circulate as long as the, uh, the printing plate itself exists. Now, there are people who would say, yes, of course, there are matters of quality and condition, but, you know, the inspiration is the same whether you have a fine, rare impression of it in the best condition or the equivalent of what in books you might call a working copy. You talk about cultural activities, that sort of thing, for mm -hmm. prints, but for books, obviously, we're looking at something that uh, illustrates the text. Let's say that this collect, this young man loves woodcuts. Basically, you never know what you're going to find or when you're going to find it. So in one sense, almost everything, is, I think, is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And the question is, if you have your mind set on something and are highly focused, if you miss it for some reason, are you flexible enough to find interest in something else, which might actually, in the end, serve your purposes and your interests better than something that is sort of like an inherited interest, or you should be doing this, or this is the thing to have. The problem is essentially what you can reasonably expect to find. You probably are not going to find many 16th century woodcuts in most places in Canada for purchase. Let's say we take the best case scenario for mm -hmm. a collector, which is that they're going to go after something that doesn't cost a huge amount of money, but that has value f for that particular collector, but could possibly appreciate over time. Appreciate, but the prime no. reason would be to cultivate your love of whatever it is. No. that You should, however, try to balance out your interest and possible investment. But if it's only on investment potential, you've already backed yourself into a corner. And if you are completely idiosyncratic to the point that, well, I just like it, I don't know why, etc., that's a good reason for collecting, but 
down the line you may be disappointed in what happens as a result of amassing things. So the best thing to do is, I think, to say, where can I go to find information? Many art galleries and libraries have resource people who can inform you what the major, certainly local sources are, and reliability. In many cases, if you associate yourself with, shall we say, people who are bookbinders, mm-hmm. will quite often be good sources of information as well. What would you collect? If you were to start it all over again with the same fire and enthusiasm you, you've you exhibited over the years? I would collect more illustrated books, quite frankly. The interesting thing about those is that it's a very particular mentality for the earlier periods, like, like 18th and 19th century. Essentially, the problem is for the illustrator to be familiar enough with the content of the book to be able to pick out salient interesting episodes which lend themselves to visualization. So the way you would judge the acceptability of a particular book for your collection, you would obviously have to read the book and then you would have to determine exactly what you've just said. Yes, in combination with going to the normal books of reference, because there are those for illustrators and artists, and see what the historical appreciation of these people was at the time and since. In other words, were they stars in their own age? Were they stars? Were they considered to be original? Were they considered to be competent journeymen? We tend often to privilege the totally exceptional things and forget that there are so many different levels of merchandise Mm -hmm. and each has its value and interest. Someone said recently uh, they've put together a collection of not the Harry Potter books, Mm -hmm. because they're hugely expensive, but books by people who have been influenced by been influenced and have written outstanding works Mm -hmm. in her jet stream. In her genre. But you see, this this again shows the influence of dissemination and diffusion through the print, whether it is a print or the printed book. It has, as an instrument of culture, a particular value and it shows you how these things become integrated into daily life and thought. So your uh, suggestion then of illustrated books, how would that fit with what you've just said? Well, illustration is a matter of mindset and it's trying to capture what the author has done. In many cases for the 18th century you may have an illustration per chapter or an illustration every few chapters. In the 19th century, suddenly you have newspapers with illustrations. Everything is illustrated. In the 18th century, this was a novelty, and people have to get used to it, and then it begins to take off with technological improvements one way or another. But are we able to get 18th century illustrated books for a reasonable price? You'd be surprised. Years ago, for example, someone I knew was collecting religious works books on religion, dogma, all sorts of things concerning religion. Even then, and I mean, we're talking about the late 1960s or 1970s, that was a highly specialized area. Many people were not interested in it. He could have brought back, you know, almost the equivalent of a container load of them from Spain, where, you know, they were sort of disregarded and out of, out of fashion. So, many, so much of collecting goes by fashion. If you can go against fashion, you have greater chances of doing something. Uh, the ephemera, in terms of 
things that are printed, not necessarily printed books or prints, that is with visuals, probably the most easily available and the most disregarded of things. But again, you sort of have to have some basic interest or cluster which winds up giving the thing form, theme, playbills. Uh, a curator at the uh, Art Gallery of Ontario gave within the last couple of years, I think it was well over a thousand posters concerning Toronto theatrical life to the National Archives. Now, you know, most people think of posters as something that you see, you walk by, maybe you go, maybe you don't, and then they're torn down and that's the end of it. But somehow or other he went about collecting them systematically. Certain things do not lend themselves to systematic collection. Certain things you cannot or should not try to collect in a serial manner. It's best to have outstanding examples of this, that, or something else. This is like an a la carte dining rather than the menu. You have the possibility of creating something that really is you and reflects your time, your place, your personality, your likes, and so forth, which is really what collecting is all about, or should be, I think. The things that you love, and then going from there, which fires that acquisitive... Yes, collecting is an acquisitive thing. I mean, there are spoilers at auctions who are determined that no one is going to get anything. There are the risks of, I suppose, on the internet or something like that, that someone is there before you. On the other hand, if you receive or have access to catalogs, never assume that any printed catalog is completely sold out. It's always worth an inquiry. I did this very, very recently for a catalog that I think was about two years old. I got one out of two items, but they were things that I really wanted. I had had the catalog in hand, but my mind was elsewhere. I was looking for other things, and it slipped right by. A lot of these things are a matter of sensitization, and your sensitization and your instincts build by doing, in the same way anything else does. You, you build up your own knowledge, you build up your confidence, just like going and touching the books yes. and, and seeing what they look like and feeling yes. what they look like. Yeah. I'm speaking with Mac Johnson, who is a professor emeritus at the University of Toronto Art History. Let's say I like oak trees and just plants in general. There's two books. The first edition, of course, and the first printing is going to be the crispest. So that's why you would go after that. I understand that. But are there any other technical features that I might want to look for? It, okay. The books can be printed on different types of papers. That is a criterion uh, which determines price, desirability, and even the quality of printing text, much less illustration. How it bites into the paper. Yes. So, for example, in many 18th century books, you will find at the top of the print page such and such, which means to the binder, put it in here and not someplace else. In many cases, it isn't. It's not put in. At the right place. Just put in. Shall we say a completely ordered, orthodox thing will probably be more desirable price-wise than something which has its eccentricities. It's still the same book. You mm -hmm. still have the same component. But there are certain contrivances or artificialities in the market that would say, and I'm not qualified to say which, okay. that this is more desirable than another. There's also what is called Harlequin Sets, which is a book title where you print up a certain number of anticipated copies, and then there's more demand. Well, it isn't economical to just print this many, so you print it. And so you wind up putting bits and pieces of different gatherings 
from different printings together, which may result in certain anomalies, certain differences that might even be shocking to a purist. You never know what you're going to find. Years and years ago, if I may digress slightly, and this is at a very high level, I mean, most people couldn't even attain it, the S. Marion sale in Paris in the 1970s, and there was a hit, Nerovimatia polyphily of 1499 in Venice, which had a stunning binding on it. As they were, you know, trying to establish the catalog, the people said, it seems a bit thick, the binding, thicker than it should be. And then finally you know, they said, we think there's another binding under this that has been covered over. And the owner had a decision to make. Should he sell it as is, or should he risk restoration, not knowing what would be found underneath? He went that way, and they found an absolutely fresh mosaic binding of the Renaissance underneath, and of course the price dropped. Oh, took a risk, didn't he? He took a risk. I know someone who did this in a painting about marvelous 19th century landscape. X-ray showed that there was something underneath. Well, it was older. Older to him was better. So instead of this absolutely stunning museum quality 19th century French landscape, he wound up with a 17th century colonial Spanish devotional picture. Now this is not likely to happen with most people, but I simply mm. use it as an example to say, well, for example, in my collection, I I didn't have great sums of money, but I tried to get the best I could saying at each time, what are my chances of finding this again within a reasonable time within my price range? That's a great great criteria, isn't it? It, it is the best criteria for anything that you're collecting. In other words, it says, are there condition problems that I can live with? Or am I going to torture myself in order to try to get the very best possible? And maybe I'll only wind up with one item. Can I live with just one item in my collections? I mean, now that's carrying it to extremes. But there were things that I rejected because they were described as working copies. A working copy is a code, and it can mean you turn it over leaf by leaf to consult it. The binding, the spine may be gone. It's like a reading copy, I guess. Usually a working copy would be considered for someone who wants to use it professionally. And the question is, what use can you get? I mean, for example, such things as underlining mm. or annotation could affect. But on the other hand, if it's the annotation is by a famous person... Yeah, or a contemporary. Or a contemporary, then it becomes an association copy. Mm -hmm. In other words, almost everything can have several different meanings or senses depending on what you're aware of at the time. And the whole idea is to develop your sensibilities so that you feel sure about these things and what you really want to stand for as a collector. What you want to be known for. The best bindings, the best illustrations, the rarest things known, a series of things that cluster around an interest that I have. You assemble what you want to be known for and stand for as a collector. I did this, I believe in it, I'm willing to, I won't say live or die by it, but and I think there's a very important phrase here, I've done the best I could under prevailing circumstances. You have to be realistic about this. It's always good for the experienced collector, or the collector who's well on his way to becoming experienced, to always want to buy something that's a little bit more than he can easily afford. 
then he'll value it that much more? In one sense, yes. It mm. probably will mean more to you because you've had to stretch. While the temptation to simply assemble things for quantity is ultimately the thing that ruins a collector or a collection. So is this a quality, not quantity? Discernment, discretion, selection, choice. In other words, for a certain type of thing, maybe one properly selected title that costs a bit more than you would normally pay would be worth having two or three of the same type that are, I won't say substandard, but are not up to that level. It satisfies a greater number of criteria all at once, as opposed to one or two which might be too highly focused. We all have to collect that way. People who are starting out now are working in a very different situation than when I was there collecting. They can have access to things all over the world now. That's an important point. A question of trust or confidence, particularly if you're accepting someone else's opinion. Many people now are setting themselves up, I hope this isn't actionable, sort of prematurely without sufficient experience, because it's different times. Many uh, booksellers? Booksellers, print sellers, yeah. antique theaters, you name it. They can do it so easily with the internet now. Yes, and so this, in one sense, maybe this satisfaction quotient is useful, but again, one person's very good copy may be another person's fine copy. Uh, the language, the terminology, if, if I may, it's like the signature at the bottom of a check. If it's a Rothschild or a Vanderbilt, you don't worry. <laughs> Put it another way, but a print dealer friend of mine in Paris, when he started out on his own, having cut the umbilical cord for the person who trained him, following his own ideas as what a print merchant should be, a print dealer should be, had initially difficulties in gaining a pan-European clientele. In other words, essentially, like many others, he was then restricted to whoever could drop in. And these people saw the merchandise, and they could and did judge for themselves. Then he began issuing catalogs, and many people would look askance at the descriptions that he gave, which were very, very detailed. And sometimes you thought, hey, this has to be a wreck. And if you were in the area, then you would drop in and discover, to your wonderful surprise, that it wasn't that at all. It was stunning. And so suddenly people began saying, well, I've been in and I've seen your works. I've seen your catalog descriptions. I now know how to interpret them. Yeah. I do not need to come and see the works. I trust you. I have confidence in you. I've verified your definitions. I've verified your definitions. I know what you mean when you use a certain term. And it's better than Joe Blow. Who puffs his merchandise up, mm. for whom everything is, you know, the opportunity of the century. Just, just in winding down, we've covered off to do the research. You have to have a personal commitment and stake in collecting. You cannot depend for other people to make your decisions. So in other words, don't follow the herd. Then there may be no herd. That means the price is going to be... It's likely to be lesser than things which are widely sought after. So we do the research, we familiarize ourselves with the technical aspects. Technical aspects, the normal books of reference that anyone would use what's good, what's... What's considered to be desirable, or more desirable and less desirable. Uh, I often use terms which are very elastic, but I think make sense. Representative, exceptional representative, and exceptional. It's a very good way of sort of categorizing things very quickly. 
representative meaning you want you want to get that slot filled in your collection mm -hmm. this will do an adequate it, it job serves a purpose it represents a certain approach to the book or to the print or whatever exceptional representative would be yes this falls within a defined area of interest or activity but it isn't bound by the period assumptions which are very conventional it adds something intangibles so and it would be something extraordinary or different? Uh, it's extraordinary extraordinary representative you see it's a step it higher and then exceptional means yeah it relates to exceptional representative but it situates in, itself yeah. within a large endeavor or a large theme or a large something rather but you know it stands out like the proverbial sore thumb it, it might it might be an association copy that it could be an association copy it could be a signed binding because I mean you know many people I mean even until the 1940s often had very mundane books sort of the equivalent of Harlequin romances beautifully bound yeah. I mean you you went to your neighborhood binder and you know he turned out these wonderful things you don't get that type of workmanship any longer there is a lot to be done for even collecting bindings from the 1930s to the 1950s. Now these are French or these are any any kind? Well, I, I know someone who has a, a marvelous collection of these that were done in the 30s to 50s in Canada. That was a thing that was done. What it went on to wasn't really that important. It was the thing that was done. It showed your interest in the book. It showed that you wanted to do something special with the books you had. I mean, you know, it was like having Waterford Crystal and Wedgwood China and things like this. This was what was done by a certain level of person. But this type of workmanship now is very difficult to find. A former student of mine does a lot of bookbinding in Toronto now, finally. She has trouble getting end papers of, of the best quality. She has to import them. In fact, in many cases, the end papers are more expensive than the binding yeah. itself. She gets a lot of stuff from Japan, for example. You know, again, some of it depends on whether you're acquiring things for their text, for their historical or cultural importance, for their thematic or other importance, or simply for their beauty. And beauty is in the eye of the beholder. A lot of people, to use another area, a lot of people now are no longer really fond of Victorian and uh, Georgian glass and are going for retro and Art Nouveau and things like this. I mean, some former students of mine who went out to Manitoba wound up uh, collecting 1950s furniture, and then 1950s furniture took off. These are generational things, as well as taste changes. Challenges to that go after what's out of fashion and, f and find it, and if you love it, then go well, for it. Well, you know, it's a very interesting thing. As far as taste are concerned, we often do not prize what our parents did but rediscover what our grandparents loved. You know, as often you jump a generation. Mm. Oh, that again. I mean, you know, I can remember, you know, my parents and my, my grandparents having these types of asides. What you live with on a regular basis, you quite often do not prize because it's current, You're, you grow up with it, it's, it's stuff. But this stuff is tomorrow likely to have other values put on it, and not just monetary value, but I mean intangible values, cultural value. Collecting is always a matter of rediscovery as well as discovery, of unearthing things, of re-evaluating them and saying... Making a case for them. Making a case for them, yes. The final question has to do with the philosophy of collecting. Your philosophy primarily has been 
about acquiring these wonderful prints in your case. Yes. So that you could study and write about them yes. rather than the other. And way I around. needed source books. I needed, yeah. but I also needed just the raw material to work on, which was the prints, which no one else was interested in. And this, of course, comes down to the basic thing of collecting. You should be an individual. You should simply say, in certain cases, hmm, we'll see what happens. I can always upgrade. I can always dispose. But if you go in it only for investment, you're working. You know, a little bit, I think, on shifting sands or cracking ice, <laughs> that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But basically, you have to have something inside you going on that pleases you, that you can say, you know, as you go by and see it on the bookshelf, I'm glad I got that. Or, hmm, there's something I can share with someone else. This is why in many cases you have collectors' clubs and so forth, which should always be investigated as well. We tend to forget that... The old way of learning was through conversation and exchange. Now we think of it mainly in terms of reference books. And reference books can never be complete. There are always things that aren't in them. There are always exceptions. Anything else? Any words, additional words of wisdom for uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's words of wisdom. I think it's simply to say that you're talking about a learning experience, which is a life experience. Something like this keeps you going. It keeps you interested it stretches the mind. It ultimately involves people who have other interests. You can always learn from someone who's collecting something very, very different. Because sometimes you get an idea that you wouldn't have had otherwise. This, I suppose, is what I mean when I say cast your net wide. Be interested in a lot of things. You don't have to take them all home with you. Interests may change as well over time. You simply feel this has served for a given phase of my life and I want to do something different. I want to turn my back and do something else because I have learned that there are other things that I'm interested in and can profit from. And the hunting nature of it keeps, keeps the thrill alive, of the hunt. doesn't it? Yeah. it? It's like, you know, a good detective mystery. It's the mm. thrill of the chase. That again is something that keeps us going. Basically, uh, collecting while it establishes certain principles of orderliness, routine, and everything like this, is risk. And if you're not willing to do that, then you follow the beaten paths and do the accepted things, simply because they are the accepted things. The main thing is to be yourself, and in many cases you discover yourself through collecting. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Mac Johnson, who is a professor emeritus at the uh, University of Toronto in art history and a collector extraordinaire.